Good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're continuing on stories out of Luke about the birth of Jesus. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs. And you can grab one of those if you'd like to follow along. We'll be on page 857, page 857, Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 35 today. This is when Jesus, right after his birth, is taken to the temple. Uh, This would be what we would call a baby dedication. And then this man, some kind of prophet-like figure, Simeon, in the Holy Spirit, blesses Jesus and his parents and uh, recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. As far as our themes this week, we're talking about the theme of peace. On the wall, we've got hope, love, joy, and peace. Uh, This is our final week before our Christmas Eve services. And we are thinking about, praying about, and looking into the scriptures to understand how Jesus at his birth brings us peace. Um, The idea of peace at its most simplest level is conflict is over, right? There was fighting, now there's no more fighting, that's the word peace. The Hebrew word shalom is a more complicated word, or maybe better to say a richer, fuller word than the simple word peace. The Hebrew word shalom has a sense of everything being the way it's supposed to be. The fullness of justice and mercy and delight and kind of like that paradise that we miss from the Garden of Eden being restored. So that's really the full Hebrew concept of shalom and peace. Um, I think we we look at peace from different perspectives. So I just want to read maybe a few examples of where different kinds of people are looking for peace. So perhaps you're a business owner and you feel like you're fighting every day just to make a living, to create something good and beautiful. You're looking for peace to some extent. You might be an educator and you're fighting against ignorance and apathy, but you're fighting. You're out there slogging it out, fighting every day. You might be a soldier, giving your life to fight for the welfare, the safety, the health, the life of others. Maybe you're a medical professional, fighting to heal people, to help people get better. Maybe you're a student, fighting for meaning in life, fighting for joy. Maybe you're a parent, fighting for love, fighting to get to that next level of stability with your family. I think we're all fighting different battles, and we're all longing for peace. So here we have the birth of Jesus, the blessing of Jesus as a baby, and the realization of peace coming to Israel. So verses 21 through 35, say it this way, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation of the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them 
and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let me pray and ask God to help us to understand his word this morning. God, we pray that you would meet us here. We thank you that you've shown us grace through Jesus, and we pray that your spirit would now help us to understand what you're saying to us in your word. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for giving us your word. We confess now that we have hearts that wander, and we pray that you would help us to listen, to be attentive, um, and we pray that you would encourage us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a book called Not the Way Things Are Supposed to Be by Cornelius Plantinga, and the book is basically about sin. The book is all about sin, but what Plantinga says is that you cannot understand sin unless you see the vision for the way things are supposed to be. So the title, Sin, is not the way things are supposed to be. He says the reverse of that is shalom, peace, the Hebrew concept of the way things are supposed to be. And he has this little short definition. Actually, I was going to read a couple of definitions, but um, one was in color and my printer didn't print it. So I'm just going to read you one of the definitions here. Uh, And one of the definitions is this. He says, shalom or peace in the Hebrew sense is the webbing together, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. So it's not just the peace of us being reconciled to God. That's definitely a part of it, right? We're separated from God by our sin, and Jesus brings us back to God, so we have peace with God. It's even more than that. It's the reconciling of all things, right? It's no more disease, no more pain, no more crying, no more tears. It's, it's, it's peace throughout the entire cosmos, right? So he says it, I'll say it one more time. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's what peace is. That's the vision. Everything being the way it's supposed to be. Um, a lot of people enjoy watching the Charlie Brown Christmas special this time of year. Any of you ever seen this one before? Charlie Brown Christmas special? Any of you ever heard of Charlie Brown or the Peanuts characters? Okay. Cartoon that, frankly, I just want to give you a little background. I didn't like a whole lot when I was a kid. I, I enjoyed the books and the cartoons when I was a kid, but, but Charlie Brown himself, I had a problem with him. He was just always depressed, you know? And everything always went wrong for Charlie Brown. And when I was a kid and I read stories, I wanted a hero. So I always liked Snoopy a lot more than Charlie Brown. I don't know about y'all. But what's interesting is as I've gotten older and I've fought more battles and I've been through more difficulties in life, I relate a whole lot more to Charlie Brown. I, I, don't, know about, I don't know about you, but as, as life gets more difficult and you experience more pain, more and more you can relate to Charlie Brown, because Charlie Brown lives the reality of a world that's not at peace, a world that's broken, it's painful, things go wrong, everything's frustrating. Well, the scriptures tell us that peace comes to us through Jesus, that the birth of Jesus was, as Simeon says, the consolation of Israel, the encouragement and blessing of Israel that they'd been waiting for. So the first thing I want to point out in this story, the way it unfolds, is that peace actually comes through law. And this is counterintuitive. This is not what we think, especially in today's society. We're a society that doesn't like law. We don't like judgment. We don't like people saying this is right and this is wrong. We're taught again and again in our culture that that's being judgmental and we should never make judgments about truth. And really the irony becomes people very vehemently saying 
there is no right or wrong, or you can't say what you believe is true, and people saying this with a passion that says what they're saying is true, right? So there's this kind of built-in dysfunction in how we think about the world, because we're saying passionately, I truly believe that all truth is relative, right? Or I really, really, really believe that you can't really, really believe things. And we're just, so we're just all kind of confused in our culture. And what the Bible says is there is an absolute right and wrong. That the God of the universe tells us what it is. He's written it down in his law, and he sets the standard. God's absolutely holy, and he's perfect. And to whatever degree that we fail to measure up to God, we're sinners. Sin is defined by not living up to God's standards. And that's the worldview that the Bible teaches. We need to recognize that goes against the worldview of our world and our culture, and probably the way most of us were raised to a large degree. So peace comes through law. Let's look at the text a little bit more. Verse 21 says, the end of eight days, he was circumcised. So they were obeying the ceremonial law. In the Old Testament, there were ceremonial aspects of the law. There were moral aspects of the law. There were judicial aspects of the law, right? Like if you steal this, you had to pay it back, right? So there were kind of different lenses through which you would see law, and they were all supposed to reflect God's holiness. We believe that God set aside the ceremonial aspects of the law now because it's all been fulfilled through Christ, and that's basically what the book of Hebrews is all about, that those were shadows that pointed us to Jesus coming. And so now that has been set aside, the ceremonies, but the Moral essence is the same. We still believe the Ten Commandments are God's moral law. But here, they're still under the ceremonies, and he's getting circumcised. And it goes on, and it says in verse uh, 22, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. There's aspects in the law that said every firstborn male had to be bought back from God. If you had a firstborn son, that son belonged to God, and you had to go through a ceremony to buy him back from God because he was God's. This coincides with the idea that our first fruits of all our crops and the first fruits of all the things we produce all belong to God. And so it goes on, and it says, they were fulfilling this law to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That tells us that they were a poor family, not a rich family, because The law says if they're a rich family, they'd offer bigger sacrifices, but if they're poor, they can offer these small birds. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem. Well, we'll we'll hold off on that. So we'll stop there. They made the offering, says, according to the law. They came to purify themselves according to the law. They came to redeem Jesus as their firstborn son according to the law. They circumcised Jesus according to the law. And so this repetition of all the things that they did according to God's law tells us that they cared about God's law. And we as New Testament people, that most of us are not Jews, need to, need to recognize the value and the beauty of God's law. Because as modern people, it's easy for us to not value God's law. And as Gentiles, as non-Jews, it's easy for us to not fully value God's law. One of the ways that I think it's helpful for us to understand how to read the Old Testament is to think about it in, con- in the concept of like a play. Any of you ever acted in a play before? Raise your hand if you've been in a play. Some of you have been in a school play when you were a kid, maybe. Um, any of you ever gone to, to view a play? It's like a movie, but with live people up front, okay? And so there's a story being told, right? But you know, whether you've been in a play or not, you know there's more to the story than just the hour where you're watching the story, right? People were practicing. They were building a set backstage. 
There's the room. I have a picture here of a backstage of a theater, and you see all these bars and things hanging. You know, they have to lower curtains, and they have these weights, and they have uh, pieces of machinery to move the set in and out. There's all kinds of infrastructure backstage. I believe one way of understanding the Old Testament is recognizing that the Old Testament gives us the story, and it also gives us set-building instructions. So as people that haven't acted in the play ourselves, sometimes that's confusing. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament story, we're a little confused by that because we're getting story, but we're also getting the pieces, the infrastructure of how to tell the story because that was the Old Testament people of God. That was their job. Their job was to build this set where they told the story of who God is. So I think that might help a little bit because I know we're, we're in a time in our culture where a lot of us just don't even read the Old Testament. When we do, we're confused. I think it would be helpful to remember, okay, what is the story being told? And then when I go back and read it, I can see, okay, they're building a whole structure. They're building a nation. They're doing these sacrifices. They're going through all these motions to tell a story. And I would say the primary elements of the story are that God, the God that made all things, is good, and he's perfect, and he's holy. And the story tells us something about ourselves, too. This is the part we don't like as much. He made us to bear his image, but we've rebelled, and we're sinners, and we don't actually bear his image. We don't actually show the world what he's like the way we're supposed to, but God didn't give up on us. He pursues a relationship with us. God has come after us, and he's come down to dwell on earth with us. He's still holy, but sacrifices can be made so that we can come into the presence of God. And so the whole sacrificial system and all these strange laws that we don't always fully understand are all telling the story. It's one simple story being told again and again through multiple different means. So I believe the more we understand the gospel, there's a holy God that made all things, that we're sinners separated from God, yet he laid our sins upon Jesus so the perfect sacrifice of Jesus can bring us in to the presence of God. The more we understand that simple story, the more we'll be able to go back and then read the Old Testament and make sense of it, even as it gives us both story and backstage instructions, right? So we're peering backstage, we're seeing the structure, we're seeing the set building, we're seeing all these pieces that don't always make sense to us because we're not in the play. But if we understand the story, we can backwards engineer and make more sense of the backstage that we see. So my encouragement to you, first of all, is understand the story. And understand the way that God's law points us to this gospel. It's not good news or law. The law is a part of the good news. The law says God has standards and we haven't lived up to them. The good news is Jesus paid for the penalty of our sin, our breaking of God's law. And so it's all integrated together. It's not like separate pieces you can separate and say, well, I'm a law person and this is a grace person over here. No, God's grace is needed because we violated God's law. So the more we understand the pieces of the story, the more we understand how the story goes together, the more we'll be able to go back and read the Old Testament. So understand the story and then read the Old Testament. That's my recommendation to you. Read the Old Testament. Don't don't just skip it because it's too hard, right? And so a great place to start if you're not a Bible reader is to start with Genesis, the beginning stories. What's really great about Genesis is you see these heroes of the Bible and you recognize that they were broken people just like you and me. They were Charlie Brown type characters, right? Where things went wrong, they weren't perfect, they sinned, but God pursued a relationship with them, just like he's pursuing with you and me. Exodus is great too. Read Exodus, the story of how God saved his people out of slavery 
from Egypt. And we see again pictures of the story. The sacrifice, this uh, Passover lamb is killed to save God's people. There's all these elements of, of rescue and gospel that we see in Exodus. Uh, I'd also recommend Proverbs and Psalms. Those are great places to read and understand what God's doing in the Old Testament as well. And I encourage you to read all of it, but I'm just saying those are good places to start, right? Genesis, Exodus, maybe Psalms and Proverbs. A lot of people like to read a proverb that matches the day, um, right? Because there's 31 Proverbs. So on the 20th of December, you could read Proverbs 20. On the 21st of December, you could read Proverbs 21. So that's what a lot of people like to do, to learn biblical wisdom from God's law in the Old Testament. So those are my two encouragements. Don't be afraid of God's law. Know the big story so that you can approach it and understand how it it tells you the story of what God's doing in the world. The next thing I want us to see is we have peace through historic particulars. This is kind of a philosophical point I'm making, so try to hang with me here. Um, The idea is that God is not just a God of ideas. God is not just a God of values floating in space, but God enters into the real world. Our culture, again, has taught us that religion is something you can never be sure about to the degree that we're not, we're, we feel guilty if we're sure about religion, right? So it's something you can never be sure about because it's opinion, value, and idea. But the Bible disagrees with that. The Bible says it's truth and history and science. God broke into this real world and real things happened. Uh, look at the story again, verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, I will grant that there is poetry in the Bible, there is parable in the Bible, there's allegory in the Bible, right? There's, there are some made-up stories in the Bible to teach us things. But most of the Bible is history. Most of the Bible is real people and a real God working through these real people. So we need to recognize that. God works through historic particulars. When you have friends, uh, so-called Christians that say, well, none of it has to be true. It just points to true ideas. You need to push back a little bit. You need to ask yourself, is that what the Bible says about itself? Or does the Bible say, no, this is real stuff that happened in real history? And I would argue the Bible says about itself that these are historic particulars that really, really happened. So Luke is writing as a historian. There was a real man named Simeon. It says in verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, so might sound a little weird. I don't know if you've ever brought your kid to church for baby dedication and some like old crazy prophet grabs him and blesses him. You know, that sounds a little scary. Um, I think Joseph and Mary are probably used to crazy things happening by now after the shepherds and everything else. So maybe it didn't freak him out. But he grabs him and blesses him and he's like, this is it. This is the one. This is the one I've been waiting for. Verse 28, he took him up in his arms. He blessed God and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now I have peace. Now I can die in peace. Now I can go in peace because I've seen the consolation of Israel. My eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all people. So peace has finally come to this real person in real history, in real time. He's been waiting for this to happen. We don't know exactly how God talked to him, but he's 
in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's with Simeon. The Holy Spirit has told Simeon that he's going to get to see the Messiah. And he finally gets to see him, and he holds it up, and it's a real baby. It's a real baby. Again, I, just, I want us to remember at Christmas time, the sign the shepherds were given was swaddling cloths, a baby lying in a manger. They, they were told, we are told, this is real. The God of the universe, who's, we want to think, sometimes unknowable, has made himself known in the form of a human baby. He's come down to us. Is he completely holy and other and distant from us? Yes. He should be, to some degree, unknowable, but he makes himself knowable. He makes himself able to be known through historic particulars. He's a real God that reaches down and speaks to us and comes to us in the person of Jesus. Again, as I said, our, our, our culture pushes us to say, well, religion is in this other category. It's in this other box, right? We have things we know over here. We can test empirically. And then we have things we can't test empirically, and we put that in the values box, in the faith box, in the religion box, in the psychology box. And the Bible likes to mix up the boxes. The Bible likes to mix up those boxes. The Bible likes to say, no, you should have real faith. You should value, you should love this truth that's broken into real history. God is coming after you. He's haunting you, and you can't just put him in a box in the corner. He's chasing you. I have a picture here of a guru meditating on top of a mountain. And I use this because this is not where most of us live, right? Most of us are not this kind of guru meditating on a mountain, but we actually share a lot in common with this kind of thought. Because this kind of thought says that there's not a creation-creator distinction. We're all one with the universe, and we can kind of enter in by removing ourselves from reality. And the temptation, as I said, is for us to think that religion is something separate from reality, that we have to back out of the day-to-day grind, right? That religion isn't another, religion doesn't have anything to do with my job, it doesn't have anything to do with my kids, it doesn't have anything to do with how I drive, and we live it as if it's a separate thing. What I'm saying is the Bible doesn't allow that. The Bible says, no, religion is something lived out in historic reality. Faith is something that affects how you live, how you love the people around you, how you do your job, what you spend your life on. The historic particulars matter. So so my first application is this. If, If God works in real history through real events, then God can work through you. If God works through real people, God can work through you. That is his desire for your life. How you love, how you live, what you do with your life, it, it matters. So Christianity is not just thinking happy thoughts and removing yourself from the day-to-day grind. Christianity is living your life out in the real, dirty, bloody mess of real life. That's what God is calling us to. Loving people in sacrificial ways, in real ways, in painful ways. Living our lives out in historic reality. So God worked through his people Israel. The, the longing that Simeon was looking forward to is for the Messiah to come. A real Messiah through a real tribe we call Israel was coming, and that's what he was waiting for. And so if God works through his special people Israel to save the whole world, he'll work through his special people the church as well in the same way. Jesus was what he was looking for in Israel, the consolation of Israel. 
And now we, by faith in Jesus, want to continue that work. We want to share that peace with the whole world. So my question for you, if God works in historic particulars, what is he asking you to do next? What's your next step? What does God want to do in your life? What does God want to do in your life on Monday? What is God asking you to do? Do you still believe that faith is just something you think about on Sundays or when you listen to a religious song or on Christmas morning when you just kind of talk about these things? Or is your faith something you're going to live out on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday? What is God asking you to do next in the historic particulars, the realities of your life? I don't know what's next for you, but I know he wants to live your faith in real life. The Holy Spirit is going to be active in reality. We also learn that peace is for every kind of person. So Simeon's waiting for God to come to Israel. God's made all these promises to Israel. He's waiting, and that fulfillment has come. And Jesus, he holds up the baby, he celebrates, and he goes on in verse 30, continuing his blessing and saying, Now um, now I can depart in peace. Verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Simeon blessed them as well. I want to start by helping us to understand that Simeon was longing for God's salvation to come to Israel, and the fulfillment of that was Jesus, right? He's holding up the baby, blessing the baby, praising God, saying, this is everything God's promised to Israel. So there are a lot of different theological views on how the church relates to Israel, how we're to understand our interaction with Israel in today's time, but we know the key is Jesus. So I'm not going to solve all the different views of how, how those things relate. But what I, I want you to see here is that the, the peak, the pinnacle, the everything they've been longing for, the consolation of Israel, literally that word consolation is encouragement or coming alongside. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 14 to say, I'm I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I'm going to send the comforter to you, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says when he leaves, he's leaving the consoler, the comforter, the one that will bring us peace. The Holy Spirit is going to come to us. Now Simeon is saying Jesus is the consoler of Israel. God has come to us. God is fulfilling his promises now, and it's in this baby Jesus. He's the answer. He's the Messiah. And this salvation is not just for Israel, but it's for the whole world. So part of the complexity of God working in Israel and God working in his church is that his idea was always to bless Israel in order to bless the whole world. He was always working with this one little tribe so that he could bless all of our tribes as well. I don't know how many tribes are represented here. I would guess there's like 50 maybe different tribes in the room. I'm not real sure if you're like me. You know, you kind of have like a mutt background of like maybe 10 different ethnic tribes you could trace your roots to. And he's promising here, I'm going to reach Israel, this one tribe, so that I can reach all the tribes of the world, a light to all the nations. And that fulfillment is coming in Jesus. There's a quote he's kind of grabbing from Isaiah 42.6, where God says, I'm the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. So Simeon is picking that up, this idea that Israel was to be a light for the nations, and now Jesus has come, and Jesus is the true Israel. 
Jesus is everything Israel was supposed to be. Jesus is everything that Adam was supposed to be. Jesus is everything that we are supposed to be. And so by faith in Jesus, our sins were punished in him on the cross, and his righteousness, him being everything that we were supposed to be, is given to us. By faith, God delights in us as his very own son. And so now the fulfillment of everything that God was supposed to do for Israel is happening in Jesus, and this is a blessing for all people, all the nations, it says, all the Gentiles, all the peoples, all the tribes. We see this vision in Revelation that every tongue and tribe is going to come before the throne, and so this is being fulfilled in Jesus. There's a vision that Peter had in Acts chapter 10. I have a kid's drawing of that vision here. We see Peter on a roof, and he's looking up, and there's a sheet that's let down from heaven, and all these unclean animals come down. And Peter is told, eat, eat, right? So Peter, who's never eaten an unclean thing, who always eats kosher like a good Jew, there's all these things, again, the infrastructure to tell the story, to, tell the, to make the play happen, to show the world that God's holy, God said you can only eat certain things. Because he was trying to communicate symbolically that he was holy. But now he said, now that Jesus is here, that doesn't need to happen anymore. You, you can read Hebrews to get the full story, right? But now that all these shadows have been fulfilled in Christ, Peter's told, take up and eat. And so I'm not personally trying to encourage you to eat bald eagles or crocodiles, but it's by way of illustration, Peter's told, you can eat all these unclean animals now, right? So these animals come down the sheet, he's told, eat. And that's really given to Peter to be a vision to explain to him, you know what, that means you can hang out with these other tribes, with these other people that you wouldn't have wanted to eat with before. You wouldn't have wanted to hang out with, he wouldn't want to hang out with people like us. He would have seen us as unclean. But now God is trying to make it crystal clear that even though there's all kinds of symbolism in the Old Testament about things that make us unclean, the reality is that what makes us unclean is our sin. So no more ceremonial clothing, no more ceremonial food he wants it to be crystal clear that the only thing that separates us from God is our sin, is our rebellion, is our desire to do our own thing. And the story is that Jesus has brought down that wall of separation. Jesus is the one that takes care of that sin problem so that now we can be reconciled to God. So my question for you is, do you recognize that? Because it doesn't matter what tribe you come from. It doesn't matter what you do to make yourself seem presentable. It doesn't matter what you were taught by your parents to make you seem clean. If you haven't repented of your sin and trusted Jesus to reconcile you to the Father, you remain unclean. No matter what tribe we come from, no matter what neighborhood we grew up in, no matter what kind of education we have, no matter what we look like, we're only clean because of Jesus. It's our sin that separates us from God. So it's now for all people. Peace is for every kind of person. It's not just a salvation for Israel, but it's a salvation for Israel so that all of us can be saved. That's the hope that we have in the gospel. And it's illustrated in this, in this room right now, a room of people gathering to worship the God of the Jews, and most of us are not Jews. Most of us come from other tribes. We come from all kinds of different backgrounds, but we're unified in Christ. We're one in the gospel. I want to just finish up with these last few words here on this section, that peace is for every kind of person, but it's a difficult peace. He kind of has a strange warning at the end here. If you, if you look in verse 
34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. So peace is coming. I want you to know that you can have peace in Jesus, but sometimes there's a painful process along the way. He says there's going to be a rising and a falling of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, there's going to be opposition. Goes on in 35 and says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So he just warned Mary, Mary, it's, it's going to be hard for you too. All these wonderful things are happening, but Mary's going to see her son killed. He goes on and he says, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I think that's the scariest thing of all. So the only way for us to have peace with God is for the thoughts of our hearts to be revealed. And I don't mean this in some kind of literal way where you know, we're going to have you all come up and just confess the most horrible things you've ever thought publicly. But the God of the universe knows. He knows. And so Christians are marked by not a cleanness where we say, I've never done bad things, so I'm one of God's special people because I'm good and clean. Christians aren't, that's not who Christians are. Christians are the people that say, I'm, I'm broken. God knows my thoughts. He knows my sin. But because of the love he has for me in Jesus, I can be reconciled to the Father. So the thoughts of our hearts are revealed. Our brokenness is revealed. The pain of our sin is revealed. And it's clear to us. But that painful process is what brings us to the peace of being reconciled to the Father. I had a friend uh, share with me a story from the Charlie Brown Christmas story just this morning. I mentioned it earlier. I don't know how many of you have seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special or any other Charlie Brown stories, but in the stories, there's a character named Linus that carries around a security blanket and sucks his thumb. You ever seen this character before? A couple of kids had blankets this morning, so that was really funny. Um, We all have these things that we carry around to make us feel secure, right? And for little kids, often it's a security blanket, and Linus is carrying his security blanket. And in the Charlie Brown Christmas story, everything's going wrong for Charlie Brown as it always does, but there's this climax of the story where Linus, arguably the most immature, insecure, weak character in the stories, steps up to proclaim God's word. And he tells the Christmas story from the book of Luke. And he says, fear not, I have good news of great joy, peace to you. What's interesting is in the cartoon, when Linus says, fear not, he drops his blanket. It's the only time in any of the Charlie Brown stories you ever see Linus let go of that blanket. Because he's talking about the peace that we have in Christ. And so you don't need to hold on to these things, whatever they might be. I know none of you, nobody in here, like I said, earlier we had two people with blankets. None of you have a blanket right now. But I know there's, there's probably something you're holding on to in your life right? It may be some addiction, maybe some relationship you know God is asking you to let go of. It may be an irrational fear of losing your job or losing your money, maybe an irrational desire to be promoted or to be first. It may be an irrational inability to cope with loneliness. There's some kind of security blanket that that you're holding on to, and I want to encourage you that, that Jesus is a a better Savior. He's a better Messiah. I encourage you to follow the example of Linus and let go of that security blanket and recognize the peace that we have in Christ this Christmas time. Let me pray for us and we'll respond together in communion.
God, we thank you that you love us and that you bring us peace through your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to let go of whatever those things are that we are holding on to, that we're gripping to make us feel secure, to make us feel whole. Help us to see that, that you are the one that saves us. You are the one that puts us back together. You are the one that makes things right. And so we look forward to shalom. We look forward to peace. We look forward to, through Jesus, you making all things right in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.